You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what He has to say in His Word. Well, a couple of years ago, uh, there was a podcast released uh, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill Church. And I'm guessing that plenty of you listened to that podcast uh, because Mars Hill is a church that has had an incredibly significant influence on the evangelical church uh, as a whole. And uh, no doubt Mars Hill influenced me as I consumed hours and hours of content, uh, which was uh, of their lead pastor, Mark Driscoll. And uh, if you listen to that podcast, uh, certainly it is incredibly heartbreaking uh, because uh, one thing that happens is they bring in one person after another after another who was part of Mars Hill Church and in the glory days of their ministry when things were going really well and was still there as things spiraled down and one common theme you'll notice is just how people felt so used so taken advantage of so uh, manipulated Uh, and you know there's always heartbreaking you could say just heartbreaking uh, devastation in any situation like that now I won't get into Mars Hill and all the specifics of that uh, but I think it's easy to say that Mars Hill is just one example uh, among thousands out there that this is something that we see uh, regularly we see ministries we see uh, businesses we see organizations completely collapse in upon themselves and often It is due to no one other than perhaps a single person or a small group of people who abused their power, abused their authority, and and did not ultimately live in submission to the Bible's design for leaders. And, uh, And so that's what makes this morning quite unique is because we get a front row seat to observe exactly Uh, how God wants every person to use the power, influence, and authority that has been given to them. And quite frankly, if you just simply followed what Jesus taught on leadership, uh, then that would get rid of 99% of the issues that you see, again, within any organization or business. You know, there are great things that happen like Mars Hill, and of course the question people are always asking after the fact is, what could we have done to avoid this, right? Uh, Perhaps we needed to change the structure of the organization. Perhaps there needed to be more accountability, more oversight. Perhaps we needed to have these people serving in, in, in this position, right? But the fact is, if every leader, again, just humbled themselves and followed Jesus' model for leadership, you wouldn't need to worry about any other issue, right? So this is critical, and uh, maybe you don't see yourself as a leader. Maybe you're like, I don't have this high position of authority, so this message isn't for me. I hope not. That certainly wouldn't be the 
a conclusion I'd want you to come to because the fact is, no matter who you are, at some point, God is going to put you in a place of authority or leadership. And whether that be in the home, outside of the home, I mean, the fact is that even in the workplace, if you just follow a, a few simple you know, follow a few simple principles, you will be given oversight somewhere along the line. Uh, sad to say, it's tough to find good employees, right? And so if you're just faithful, if you show up to your job, if you do your work to the best of your abilities, before you know it, eventually one day you will be a supervisor. So whether you are parenting children in the home, whether you run a business outside of the home, I think what we look at today uh, the, the principles that Jesus lays down for leadership, we need to hear these. Uh, we need to hear these because there will be no godly fruit that comes from our leadership if we don't heed what Jesus has to say. And so with that, I want to invite you to turn your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 20, where we are going to be looking at verses 20 through 28. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Quite an interesting passage we're looking at this morning, isn't it? You hopefully notice what's going on here. You have a mother who is approaching Jesus on behalf of her two sons, and she is doing so in order to secure positions of influence for them. In fact, not just any positions, but we would say these are the most prominent and the most important positions that there would ever be, positions in Jesus' future kingdom. And again, just notice the request of the mother. She says to Jesus, and the idea is promise or command or grant that these two sons of mine would be able to sit next to you in your kingdom. Can you imagine? Have the closest seats to Jesus? Who wouldn't want those? Now, some things we need to understand about these sons of the woman. Now, we are talking about the apostles John and James. And understand something of these men few people were closer to Jesus than these two. And it should, in one sense, be a bit surprising that they are coming to Jesus because, I mean, asking this 
because they're so close to Jesus. I mean, these two men, along with Peter, are not only just part of the 12, but they are part of Jesus' inner circle. And so they get to be with Jesus in some very special moments. For example, they are with Jesus when he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. They're with him when he's transfigured on the mountain. And they are with him when he is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he is delivered over to the religious leaders betrayed by Judas. And not only that, but John in particular has the unique claim of being the closest with Jesus, hence why he is leaning on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper and why he is entrusted with the care of Jesus' mother upon his death and also why he is the first to reach the empty tomb before anyone else. And so we kind of think to ourselves, well, given, given this unique relationship that these two men have with Jesus, I mean, why don't they just go to Jesus just by themselves and make this request? You know, why get their mom involved? It almost, you get the sense of like that parent that goes to the coach and is like, hey, my kid's not getting enough playing time. Do you think he can make him a starter? I mean, it's, it's, it's a bit peculiar, right? So who is this woman? Well, interestingly, when you study the end of the Gospel of Matthew and you look in Matthew chapter 27, uh, one thing that seems to come through is that this woman may actually be the sister of Jesus' mother, Mary. So this would make the woman Jesus' aunt, right? And therefore, it would also make James and John first cousins of Jesus. And one thing we know of this woman is that she is one among several women that actually accompany Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem and is ministering to him. So you have to think, like, are the, are the apostles here kind of, like, sneakily using their mother because they know Jesus has a soft place in his heart? And, of course, Jesus is one who seeks to honor his parents, and so... If he wants to honor his mother, maybe he'll feel forced to honor his aunt. Or what's going on there? We don't know, but it does seem to be completely out of line, not only in their approach, but also in what they're requesting. Both of those would have been out of bounds. And we kind of understand this because what's the response by the other apostles? We are told when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. And no doubt partly why this was is because they probably all had their sights set on the same thing, right? They all wanted to be next to Jesus. And now they see James and John leveraging potentially their familial relationship with Jesus, leveraging their special relationship with Jesus to get these positions. And maybe you're thinking, well, well are they actually leveraging their mother i mean because i mean isn't the mom the one that makes the request yes but it's interesting you have to notice jesus reply because his reply is not actually directed at the mother his reply is directed towards james and john and in fact in the parallel text of this specific story one thing that's interesting to observe in mark is that the mother isn't even mentioned and so it becomes very obvious that these men really are kind of hiding behind their mother, but they're propping her up and putting her forward to gain something for themselves that they really want. 
And, uh, and as I noted, I mean, this is completely out of line, uh, both in the manner in which they are looking for this position, and, and, and in fact, it's also just out of place considering what we just looked at last week. And in case you weren't here, or in case you don't remember, just if I would, uh, just bring your attention to verse 18, okay? Jesus says there, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. So just... Imagine, okay, that somebody says to their friend, I got terrible news. Doctors just diagnosed me with this condition, and, and, and I'm going to be dying here in the next three months. And the friend's response is, oh, man, that's awful. But do you think I could, you know, have your house when you're gone? Think I could have your job when you're gone? Think I could have your car when you're gone, right? I mean, that seems to be a bit of what's happening. You have this somber, sober moment between Jesus and the disciples, but they're still thinking about glory in spite of what Jesus has said regarding his coming sufferings. They're thinking about greatness. They're thinking about future rewards, and this continues to be a common theme for the disciples. You might remember that some time ago we looked at a passage where you have the disciples who are debating among themselves who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven who's going to be the greatest who's going to be the most worthy of honor of acknowledgement by god for what they have done and here we are again and so as we look at this passage here's what i want us to notice i really want us to notice three encouragements that shine through that jesus provides Really, that should be heeded by anyone who seeks greatness with God. And no doubt, we're all in the same place of making those same types of mistakes as the disciples. We tend to get it wrong when it comes to what success is. We get it wrong when it comes to how to use our influence and our power. And so, three encouragements that we need to heed if we are to seek greatness with God. So what are those encouragements? The first would be this, that those who desire greatness must first welcome Christ's sufferings. They must first welcome Christ's sufferings. If you would, look at verse 22. So again, James and John have just made this huge ask through their mother. And how does Jesus respond? Well, ultimately, he says a couple of things. First, he says, you, you really don't know what you're asking. But secondly, and this is what I really want to zero in on, he says in verse 23, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Now, there's a couple of things worth pointing out here, but key to our first point then is this, what does it mean to drink the cup that Jesus drinks? Is this a picture of fellowship? Are we talking about something around a table? Is this a metaphor? Is this literal? How are we to understand this? And I think the answer is, you have to first consider what happened before this passage. Again, just remember that Jesus has just made his third prediction of what he will face in Jerusalem. And this is important because when you get to Matthew 26, and Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, consider his prayer. 
What is it? He prays this. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And not long after this, after he is betrayed and Peter cuts off one of the ears of the soldiers, what else does he say? John chapter 18, verse 11, Jesus says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the cup is unquestionably, undoubtedly, it is the cup of affliction. It is the cup of God's trials. It is the cup of suffering and everything that's involved with Jesus going to the cross for the glory of God and for the good of God's people. And Jesus says to the disciples, are you able to drink that cup? And actually, Mark chapter 10, verse 38 adds this, are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And what is their response? We are able. We are able. It kind of reminds me of the moment when, when Peter is told that, you know, Jesus is going to be betrayed, right? And, and, and he's going to be abandoned. And what's Peter say? Like, far be it. Like, I'll never leave you. Others might fall away. But that, that'll never happen to me. I'll go to the end of the earth for you. There's a certain amount of confidence with what these apostles are saying. But we have to wonder if they truly understand what they're saying. Like, are they just trying to impress Jesus? Like, we're, we're totally going to be willing to do anything you want us to do, Jesus. Yes, we are able to drink your cup. But then later on, we know that when Jesus is betrayed, what happens to his sheep? They scatter. And all of a sudden, it seems that confidence, at least for a moment, would escape them. That said, though, we do know that they will drink the cup that Jesus drinks because both of them will ultimately die for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Jesus Christ. James being the first martyr among the disciples and John who would die on the island of Patmos where he would be exiled. So is it overconfidence here? Maybe. Maybe it's also genuinely a great display of their faith. I mean, certainly they do understand some important truths about Jesus, and they clearly have confidence that Jesus will establish his kingdom, right? But in any case, we know that there will be a cost that comes with the establishment of that kingdom. And Jesus, over and over and over again, has been trying to get this through to the disciples, hasn't he? We, we could think back to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. We could think of Matthew chapter 10, verse 24, where Jesus said to them, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And friends, the same at some level is going to be true of you. If you follow Jesus... 
If you want to be great in his kingdom, then you must be prepared to endure all that comes for standing for the name of Jesus Christ. I don't know what it's going to cost you, but it will cost you something. And if it costs, if it costs you nothing, then let me just say beware, because it might be that you are not truly a follower of Jesus Christ, if that's the case. There will be a cost. For some, it will be within their families, where they will be hated by their brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, grandparents, what have you. Perhaps it's going to be in the workplace. Perhaps it's going to be being prevented from that great promotion of which you sought. Maybe it's going to require a career change somewhere along the line because all of a sudden you realize that the stipulations that are being laid on your shoulders by your boss absolutely conflicts with the ethics of the Bible. But suffering must always accompany the Lord's people. And not only is it promised, but it's also considered a gracious thing by God. Consider what Paul says in Philippians. He says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. One thing Paul needed to learn was how to rejoice in the midst of suffering, and we are no different. And, and he did rejoice, didn't he, friends? He rejoiced so much that he finally got to that place where he could say in Philippians 3, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I might may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. So, those who seek greatness, they need to welcome Christ's sufferings. But secondly, what else? Secondly, we also see this encouragement. Secondly, they must also trust the Father's rewards. They must trust the Father's rewards. So we just touched on what it means to drink from Jesus' cup. And again, he affirms to James and John that they will drink his cup but what does Jesus say after that? He says, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And friends, here once again, we see the continuing extent of Jesus' submission to the Father. Jesus comes not to seek his own will, but the will of his Father. He comes not for his own glory, but the glory of the Father. He comes not for his own reward and his own honor, but for the reward and honor of the Father. It is amazing to consider Jesus continuing to point to the Father. And we saw this earlier in regards to rewards as we spoke about them in Matthew 6, didn't we? For we heard there... 
where Jesus taught the disciples, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Friends, remember, God rewards our faithfulness to him. And it's amazing to consider Because we know that by nature, we don't deserve anything except for God's righteous condemnation upon our lives. And yet, in Christ, and through the work of what God's own Son does, not only are we granted eternal life, but God makes everything profitable in this life, where we are able, even after salvation, to incur future heavenly rewards. And I just have to ask, how many times are you motivated by that reality? How many times this week have you been comforted and encouraged by the fact that God sees absolutely everything you do? And you say, well, that kind of makes me tremble a little bit more than it brings me encouragement. And there's an extent to which that is true, but also at the same time, friends, if if God sees every single thing that goes on in our lives, then there is nothing that we do that does not have purpose, does not have significance, does not have meaning. And I don't care, again, what your position of influence or authority is. God sees your labor of love for him. He sees... When you're changing those diapers. He sees when you're picking up those kids from school. He sees when you're interacting with your neighbors. And every act in this life has significance to it. And the Father sees it. And here we stand knowing that God will reward and he will reward perfectly. We need not worry about what our rewards are going to be. We need not worry about what someone else's rewards are going to be. Because is God faithful? Is God just? Is God wise? Is God perfect? Well then, friends, we need to wait upon his rewards, which will never be out of portion. So those who seek greatness, they need to welcome Christ's sufferings. They need to trust the Father's rewards. But lastly and finally, what else? Lastly, they must serve like the Son of Man. They must serve like the Son of Man. Now notice the transition here, because where verses 20 through 24 focused on James and John, now the attention moves to all the disciples in verse 25. And this, without question, would have been very helpful and perhaps even necessary, right, to bring some order and some unity back to the group. Because, I mean, those 10 disciples, they were pretty ticked off at John and James. And can you just imagine what kind of, like, scrap was just about to go on between them? And here Jesus brings them all together and, guys, guys, I need you to listen up because, again, you're you're getting it wrong. You, You need to hear me here. You need to understand what leadership is about and what it's not about. You need to think about how God views your authority and, again, how that is connected to future reward. And ultimately, there are two overarching lessons about leadership that we see. First, there's an emphasis on the negative, how great leaders don't lead. 
And then there's an emphasis on the positive, how great leaders are to lead. So how are great leaders not to lead? Look at verse 25. Jesus says to the disciples, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Again, the emphasis on how not to lead here. It shall not be so among you. Now, keep in mind, Jesus is not picking on the Gentiles. The fact is that the same would have been true for the Jews as well. And when you look at the Greek, that's why we see the word is ethnos, which is best translated, I think, here as nations. So the sense is, you know, you know disciples. You know what leadership in the world among the nations looks like. Like a it's like a foregone conclusion that they have seen leadership in action and they have seen more negative examples than they can possibly account for. You know, disciples, you know how people love to exert their power. You know how they love to expand their control. You know how they love to grow their real estate, how to flaunt their credentials. I think that's ultimately the idea here of lording it over and exercising authority over. He's pointing out this common tendency of people to lead with tyrannical leadership. Even today, we see the same thing, how people love to climb the corporate ladder and even push down whoever else it so requires if it helps get them to the top. And you've seen those people that love organizational charts, right? They love to look at how many employees are working for the company and how many are underneath their supervision and where they stand atop them all. You have no doubt seen this for yourself. We see in the world an emphasis always on progress. It's not about people. It's about what we can get done. It's about getting to the next level. It's about building the next thing. And so many people, in, in seeking progress, how do they act? They seek control. They seek greater power. And, and in fact, they want you to feel their control, don't they? Which is why they oftentimes use methods of coercion and manipulation. They might even at times make open threats. They might remind you of how much power they have and oh, if you step out of line, how much power they have to destroy your life if you don't get in line. Such leadership is toxic, but it abounds all over the place. And this is precisely why you have case after case after case situations like Mars Hill Church or Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein and a million others. So the first emphasis is you see leadership in the world and how I've called you to lead, how I have called you to exercise your influence is nothing like the world. So that's how not to lead. But sometimes if you just look at how not to do something, it doesn't get you any closer to how you should do something. So we're thankful he comes around the other side now. And, and in response, this is how I want you to lead now. Look at verse 26. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. 
Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Now, there's two words Jesus hears, uh, says here that I think are uh, worthy of our consideration. Uh, the first word, servant, is the word diakonos. And then the second word is doulos. Now, diakonos referred to a person who essentially did menial labor. They would do things like clean houses and serve tables. It wasn't necessarily a term of dishonor, but it was a word to describe the lowest level of help. Low skilled labor, if you will, with very little training necessary. Perhaps you could think of, and I hope not to offend anyone here, but perhaps you could think of a dishwasher, right? Just about anybody can wash dishes. My kids swear that that's not the case, but I have seen it proven otherwise. Anybody can wash dishes. It takes very little time to train somebody in with how to put them into the, sanit you know, the sanitizing machine and how to spray them off. But a slave, do loss, did not, the, the person didn't belong to himself, but to his master. So there's, a, there's, there's even a change there. So Jesus is called to serve and go so far down that you would become a slave. A slave could only go where their master wanted him to go. He could only do what the master wanted him to do. We are talking about leadership values literally turn upon their heads. What Jesus says here is a complete it is in complete opposition to the worldly values of leadership. When you talk about a slave, when you talk about a servant, you're talking about one who we might esteem as weak. Even today, weakness has nothing to do with leadership, right? You don't show weakness. You don't show flaws. You don't let down your guard. You show strength. You show charisma. You show attitude. We sometimes hear this in leadership, uh, encouragement. Fake it till you make it, right? You may not have the answers, but you, you just march ahead. Don't let anybody know that you don't have the answers for this situation. They cannot see weakness. But Jesus would seem to act against all of this. His call here for leadership is that leaders would have a special concern and regard for those around him. Something worth clarifying here as we think about this is we need to understand Jesus is not talking about deconstructing authority structures, okay? And you're thinking like, if he's calling me to be a slave, does that mean I'm supposed to give up my position, give up my authority to somebody else? No. No. I need to clarify that point because one thing you notice a lot going on today, right, is that authority is, it's bad. We need to break out from all authority. Kids want to break out from their parents' authority. Criminals want to break out from the police's authority. Black Lives Matter wants you to, they, they want to undo civil authority. Every authority in society, they would say, is bad. We, we need to get rid of it. We need to abolish it. But you abolish it and you replace it with something else and what are you left with? A world that's still marked by sin. People who have authority that still have a sinful nature. Sin is the problem with authority. Authority is not the problem. Authority is actually God-given. 
Authority, we should even say, is a gift. He ordains the government. He ordains civil authority for the good of society and for the good of God's people. He ordains the authority of parents for the good of children. Authority is a blessing, and the only time it doesn't become a blessing is when authority is misused because of people succumbing to sinful desire. And so what is the call then for God's people to be regularly on the lookout for pride, for arrogance? He wants humble leaders, leaders submitted to God's model for leadership. He, he wants leaders who think about how their actions affect those around them even right down to the most seemingly insignificant person. And of course, who is the number one example of this kind of leadership? Well, we see it here in verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is, this is the preeminent picture then at this point. This is where everything in this passage moves towards. If you're going to be a faithful leader, you must first consider, how does Jesus lead? How has Jesus lived? We see the bracelets. What would Jesus do? That is the question we have to constantly be asking. And he lived in this way. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Understand the significance of this, of this concept of ransom. A ransom would be a purchase price paid to obtain the release of a captive. There were many ways that you could become a captive of someone else. Perhaps you just owed them a significant debt, and therefore to pay off that debt, you would make yourself a slave. But oftentimes, slaves would be captives of war. And friends, as you think about our situation, we are captives of war because the Bible describes us as slaves to what? We are slaves to sin. Apart from Christ, there's no hope for any one of us. We wake up in the morning and we follow the lust of our own hearts. We follow the path of the prince of the power of the air. We do Satan's work willingly. And it doesn't take much to get us to do it. He baits us in, but oh, how we sin because we want to sin. And we will only ever want to sin until God by his grace transforms us with the message of the gospel where he provides us a new heart he removes the heart of stone he gives us a heart of flesh he, he breaks the power and the grip of sin over our lives and he redeems us so that we can finally worship God we can finally serve God we have true freedom in Christ. That's the picture. He has done this. He has paid the debt, and he has paid it. He has paid it at the cost of his own blood. The cost of his own blood. He himself chose to subordinate himself to the Father's plan. He even chose to subordinate himself to human authority structures that were unjust, unholy, and set against him in order 
to redeem God's people. Friends, never forget that great leaders are humble leaders. And if you are to be of value in your leadership to Jesus, he will make sure that you are humble. The question is, will you humble yourself or will you force God to humble you? Humble leaders work in lonely and uncomfortable places. They seek no reward, they demand no recognition, and they follow the example of their Savior. And if I would have any encouragement for you this morning, it would be this. Follow Jesus' example, and you will find success in the eyes of God, no matter what the world has to say. And in this, there will be joy. Because in God's time, there will come a reward greater than you can possibly comprehend, greater than you can possibly imagine. And God, who sees in secret, will certainly reward you. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.